0: Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. Her name is Charlotte Dennett, and she just published a book this year, twenty twenty two. Title of the book that we're going to discuss is "Follow the Pipelines: Uncovering the Mystery of a Lost Spy and the Deadly Politics of the Great Game for Oil," and really a fascinating book. And it ties into some of the some earlier books that I've interviewed the authors within the last twelve months. Those two books, and you can go back and listen to those. Are spies and traitors? Kim Philby, James Angleton, and the friendship and betrayal that would shape MI6, the CIA, in the Cold War. That's Michael Holtzman, and then also Anne Tazewell put out a, a kind of a CIA memoir about her dad. Uh, a good spy leaves no trace. Big Oil, CIA secrets, and a spy's daughter's reckoning. And so I would suggest people go listen to those as well after de- finishing listening to this one. Charlotte Taze, uh, Charlotte has Charlotte Dennett has published other books. She published in 2017, I Will Be Done, The Conquest of the Amazon, Nelson Rockefeller, and Evangelism in the Age of Oil. And then in 2010, The People v. Bush, One Lawyer's Campaign to Bring the President to Justice and the National Grassroots Movement, she encounters along the way. And that was 2010. But again, the title of the book we're going to talk about today is Follow the Pipelines Uncovering the Mystery of a Lost Spy and the Deadly Politics of the Great Game for Oil. And it ties in, I think, very important. Uh, to current events in Eastern Europe and Russia and the energy crisis that we're experiencing now. Uh, Energy was definitely an issue in the historical aspects of this book and in the different sections where she covers how important oil became post-war in what she calls the Great Game. So, Charlotte Dennett, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, great to be here. Looking (laughs) forward to our discussion. (laughs)
0: Great. Well, I I appreciate you taking the time to talk about this fascinating book. For people who may not have heard your name or your earlier books, can you do a background of how you got involved in People v. Bush and Thy Will Be Done, and then what led you to write Follow the Pipelines?
1: Well, I would have to start with Thy Will Be Done, uh, which uh, took my husband and he... 18 years to research and then write. He was the primary author, but I I was doing a lot of the research and some of the editing with him. And um, that was an investigation of genocide of indigenous Indians in Latin America, and particularly the Amazon. And uh, we were trying to figure out why uh, fundamentalist missionaries were turning a blind eye to uh, the Uh, ethnocide and genocide of some of the very Indians they were working with. And there were rumors that the CIA was somehow involved. So as Americans, we felt duty bound to investigate that. And when we got down there, um, what we really learned was that it wasn't just local church communities uh, contributing to the missionaries. We eventually found out that it was big corporate interests located mostly in the East that were uh, funding these missionaries. And the reason they were funding them was to pacify indigenous people uh, so that they would not resist to large oil companies, ranchers, agribusiness coming onto their lands. It's sort of a, a reproduction of what happened in the American West. And so that was a huge education for me. And also by eventually discovering that Nelson and Rockefeller people, uh, was very much involved in that. And uh, he had a a so-called shining dream for the development of the Amazon. And as everyone knows, the Rockefeller family were the premier family, certainly in the 20th century, in oil production, distribution, all aspects of the oil industry, including, by the way, propaganda. So by getting into his papers, Uh, in the National Archives and in the Rockefeller Archives, we were able to, what I say, climb to the top of the mountain. And looking down, the view was fantastic because then we could see all the interrelationships, how different groups and organizations are used by the very powerful to achieve an end, and the end is conquest. So, So that book has been called anatomy of conquests, because once you learn the lessons of how Nelson Rockefeller developed the Amazon, or part of it at any rate, and created his own empire in Latin America, you can apply it to other parts of the world. So for me, who had been a reporter in the Middle East, what I did is I took the lessons from that book and applied them to the Middle East. And the first big test uh, for me in applying it was uh, when George W. Bush uh, invaded Afghanistan, which is Central Asia, right next to Middle East, and Iraq. And, and in doing that, I suspected, as I, I'm sure most people thought, there must be an oil angle, certainly to the Iraq invasion. People didn't really know what Afghanistan was about. But I dove into it uh, because I already knew um, that central to any America, uh, any empire, or any major power that strives to be a superpower or a major player, they have to have access to oil. And the reason they have to have have access to oil is 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 the fuel of the military. American people aren't told that very often. You hardly ever hear it on the news, except now, fascinatingly, in Ukraine. It's it's unavoidable. They have to talk about it. We can get. Get on to that later if you want, but uh, the other, know. yeah, the other impetus for me, of course, um, was to figure out uh, what was behind the death of my father because he was America's first master spy in the Middle East, and this was just uh, during and after World War II, and he died in a mysterious plane crash after a top secret mission to Saudi Arabia. So in the course of investigating his death, I was an infant at the time, but later on, um, I also learned the oil connection. And in that case, it was definitely the oil of Saudi Arabia and the pipeline, the Trans-Arabian pipeline that was going to carry that oil uh, to a terminal point in either Lebanon or Palestine, not yet Israel, and then be transshipped to Europe. So you put all those three together. And uh, I, I've been called by Time Magazine as an uh, expert in um, political, what is it, an expert in, in political um, resources. And um, that's what I've become, actually, out of needing to know um,
0: what's right, behind you, all these
1: wars and these deaths.
0: Right. And you you have a personal... Uh, experience in the Middle East as well, right? When you were starting out as a journalist.
1: Um, I have
0: a person in Lebanon. Well, you were in Lebanon. I mean, you start one of your chapters, you're being shot at, right?
1: Yeah. No, I was, uh, I ended up being a reporter for the Beirut Daily Star in Lebanon, which is the English language newspaper. And, um, (sighs) So yes, I uh, happened to be there right before the Lebanese uh, Civil War broke out. I was in a taxi and saw this uh, tanker come barreling down the road towards us. And we all jumped out of the car and I took refuge in a school and was sort of on my belly taking notes the whole time while there was firing all around me. I didn't even know who who was responsible, what what was happening. But towards when it was getting late, a young man came. He said he had seen me there and he said, You better get out of here because you don't know who's going to come and occupy the school. And so he helped me escape. And as we were dashing across the road, we were fired at. And uh, when you escape a sniper's bullet, it sort of makes an impression on you. Uh, For me, I, I. I wasn't real keen on on being a war correspondent at that point, and especially since I wasn't exactly sure what this all this fighting was about. So I went back to the states to sit it out, and then it was so awful. It lasted for for fifteen years, and um, and actually I didn't sit it out. That's when I went to the Amazon, uh, did that book. But later on, um, you know, the Middle East, it, it has a special place in my heart. I was born there, and um, so I wanted to go back. And so I, I did go back in 2011 at the very time when the Syrian civil war was starting. So I write about that in my book as well.
0: Right. So you've covered a lot of different things. And I think it was an indicative of how dangerous the Middle East was, and even your father before he his uh, plane crash said that he was in danger and it was a dangerous time post-war, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. But what I found so fascinating because I was able to, um, I sued the CIA and was able to get documents declassified. And one of them, his analysis of work, which was basically his marching orders, uh, the redactor left out this key sentence about what he was supposed to do when he went over there. And the sentence was, we must protect the oil at all costs. And the oil he was referring to was Saudi oil because getting control of Saudi oil was key to Americans' emergence as a as a great power. And it's been called an artery of empire even back then. And it was also crucial to help uh, Europe recover after the war through the Marshall Plan and to serve as an alternative to the uh, communist-run coal unions. So it was very crucial, but there was huge competition about this uh, pipeline from no less than our own allies. What I found out is that p- the main people he was spying on were the British, the French, and the Russians. This is sort of mind-blowing. I mean, most people, <laughs> most people don't think that we spy on our allies, but, but it does happen for sure. And it's all about oil. Who's going to get the oil? Who's going to control it? And then how is it going to be distributed? And oftentimes it has to be distributed over land, and that means by pipelines. So then you get into the whole intrigue about, you know, what what peoples are going to fight the pipelines, uh, who's going to be in favor of it, and uh, what do you have to do to ensure that that oil gets safely to market? And what I found out. It was. It led to the civil war in Syria. It, it had a lot to do with all the um, the unrest in Iraq. In fact, it had to do with the war in Iraq and with Afghanistan. But that's ask me more, and I'll tell you.
0: <laughs> right, and even Turkey, the Donetsk you mentioned in your book, which was published before this war started, this most recent conflict started. So it's there everywhere, and it's before the advent of the super tanker. So it was critical at that time to have pipelines to ship your your oil to Western markets, right?
1: Absolutely, but it's still critical, even with a super tanker. For instance, in Ukraine, of in Ukraine, there's the Nord Stream Two pipeline, which uh, was one of the first uh, big projects that was sanctioned by the U.S. Actually, continually. Uh, For the past four years, the U.S. was very threatened by that pipeline because it would have supplied even more Russian natural gas uh, to Europe through Germany. And at the time, I mean, already uh, Europe depends on 40% of its energy on uh, natural gas that's that's sent through pipelines and actually pipelines that transit through Ukraine. And so uh, the U.S. was able to... Prevent this uh, pipeline for going for going online, and uh, because they didn't want Europe getting even more. Uh oh, even getting even more um, energy from you from the Russians. Man, I gotta turn off this. Hold on. Right. So Sorry, even the that. Right, no yeah.
0: problem. But the post-war pipeline issues, what you called the tap line, the Trans Arabian Peninsula ones, whether it was going to come out of Beirut or. Palestine, I think it was Haifa in Palestine. Those issues are still happening today with Nord Stream, just in a different part of the world.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, as soon as I as soon as I saw that there was this uh confrontation developing over Ukraine, immediately from my lens, I started to look into the oil and gas issue. And there it was. In fact, I could tell your listeners. That if you see a conflict in a given part of the world, particularly Middle East, Central Asia, and Africa, and uh, that has been a protected contra- uh, conflict, and then type in the word oil, you'll be amazed at how often it, there is o- the, the, the competition for oil is at the heart of it, sadly, which is why we've got to get off it.
0: <laughs> right. I mean, it is incredible. And that was kind of what your dad was going, was about the oil contracts in Ethiopia with Haile Selassie, right? Or he was somehow connected to those negotiations.
1: Absolutely. Um, yeah, so his plane, what happened is he, uh, after his top top secret mission to Saudi Arabia to determine the route of the Trans-Arabian pipeline, uh, then he uh, got on a plane from Saudi Arabia to go to Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. And so, I had to figure out what that was all about. I was able to get a hold of the accident report through the National Archives. And I also had access to my father's last reports. And so, what I learned is um, that plane had on, first of all, who was on the plane? Well, my father, um, head of counterintelligence for the Central Intelligence Group, which was the immediate predecessor to the CIA, but also the petroleum attache. Uh, who ha- was located in Cairo. He was on the plane. And there was a person who was specialized in navigation and communications equipment. He, I later learned, was with the Central Intelligence Group. And what I learned is that at this very time, Halley Selassie had granted an exclusive concession to an American oil company, Sinclair Oil, to um, to prospect for oil in ethiopia and this had guess who the british extremely concerned because up to this point the british had had complete control over ethiopia domestically uh in terms of its foreign policy it controlled the air routes and and the radio uh links and the railroads and in comes this upstart once again the united states uh and uh, cutting deals with Halley Selassie, and the idea was that they were going to set up an Ethiopian Airlines, which would be controlled by Ethiopia, but which would be managed by TWA. And one of the things I learned is when the T when a TWA guy traveled to e- Ethiopia to set up this airline a, a year before the crash, he his airplane crashed. And, and it was going on this, the very same route. Um, I haven't been able to find out more, but I do know that um, this, this mission was very important for U.S. Uh, for U.S. to develop a strong base in Ethiopia. And the communication equipment was one of the th- things that would allow them to circumvent the, the British communi- communication systems and uh, assist in develop this, this Airline, this competing airlines. Plus, right. there was they, there were aerial cameras on the ship, right. and they were to, to 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 take pictures of possible pipeline routes. Same story, oh, right. different country. I mean, I'm oversimplifying and, it a little bit, but basically, yes.
0: Right, but a guy's name was Jack Nichols. So there's all kinds of suspicious uh, plane crashes around that time. So hyper competitive environment, and the Americans are aggressively seeking oil contracts all throughout the Middle East and beyond, right? All over the world.
1: Yes. And the problem and you, with plane crash is yeah, go ahead.
0: No, I was just gonna say please continue.
1: I I was just gonna say yeah plane crashes when you have very powerful people or very significant people that die in mysterious plane crashes uh reason that that is used is because it's very hard to prove who did it and that that's been proven true over and over again i mean the hammershaw plane crash i don't think it's ever been proven other than the fact that that it was sabotage but who did it you know there there, there are various um explanations also a plane crash that killed uh, sikorsky of poland um in 1943 uh the same thing um at uh, the same at this time uh F- kim philby was stationed uh in in spain uh, where that i think that's spain gibraltar where, where the plane took off and he's been linked to that plane crash in uh, my you know proof is difficult
0: Right. You, I mean, Philby is an important part of the narrative of your book because he's around right when your dad is in Beirut, right? So he, I think he was a station chief in Turkey and then in Beirut, right? Uh,
1: Philby was a station chief, head of counterintelligence in Turkey. My father was head of counterintelligence in Beirut. So. They, To my mind, they had to have known each other, absolutely, because conceivably, Philby uh, was um, working for the British. That's why he was posted there. But as people who know the story of the Philbys, um, his true loyalties were to the Soviet Union. And in that case, my father should have known that as, as well, because when you encounter in intelligence, uh, this is like the highest level of intelligence. You need to know who's trying to penetrate your organization and you're trying to penetrate their organization. So the, there's a lot of evidence uh, that their their paths crossed. And yet I cannot find anything in the official record that shows that they knew each other, but which is frustrating for have, me. Right, right.
0: He had to have known Philby Sr., who was the advisor to Ibn Saud and was essential in getting Standard Oil's contract with the Saudis so they were well-known figures in the middle. at least the father was a very well-known figure kind of a dashing adventurer in the Middle East at that time pre World well, War II
1: well well he was also he was also advisor to the king Ibn Saud so um yeah he Actually, the British were pissed off at him because uh, he kept saying to the British, you know, you should be backing this guy. And the, and the Brits uh, didn't take up his advice. And so then he turned to the Americans and said, look, this guy, Ibn Saud, he's the future Saudi Arabia. So there's that whole murky story about how a, a British uh, intelligence officer ends up sort of betraying the British and tipping off the Americans. But you never know for sure. Maybe he's still doing working for both. And um, interestingly enough, he invites his son, Kim Philby, to visit Saudi Arabia two months before my father makes his own mission to Saudi Arabia. And so and they cover some of the same ground. So again, to me that this is all the great game being played out. And what you got to do is dig really deep to to, to fully understand Um, who the players were and what their main objectives it was. One of my theories is that, you know, Kim Philby, the son, um, had to play to both sides. You know, he was working for the British, but he was also working for the Russians, and he had to deliver to both. And what would be a better way to do that than to spy on the Americans? Because both the British and the Russians we're very concerned about the Americans building up this huge empire uh, in the Middle East because of their control of Saudi oil.
0: Right. I mean, yeah, it—the it, spying that happened in World War II—it just was. It didn't change. It just all the players change after the war ended, and then they're all spying on each other. in Yeah. And it goes all the way to the present day. So you had so many overthrows too over oil in the Middle East. So many CIA-backed overthrows and you read what the cult of intelligence Marchetti's yes. book too. Yeah. you mentioned that in there can you talk about CIA's influence in the Middle East and, the, and involvement in pipelines
1: well well first of all my father the central intelligence group it was the immediate predecessor to, to the CIA but the CIA actually I think in large degree because of my work and also a CIA historian who said uh This guy, Dennett, uh, really should be acknowledged as our first fallen star. We can get into that ceremony. But but at any event, um, as a result, um, so he was active in trying to get the tap line to cross through um, Saudi Arabia in order to terminate in the Mediterranean and the Syrians back then 1947 were resisting. And the reason they were resisting in part was because um, they were highly nationalist and they were opposed to the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine. So I have, I have documents. In fact, my father's last report that talks about the frustration of the pipeline company uh, executive, William Lenehan, who's connected with Aramco, who's the American oil company, about how the Syrians are not cooperating. And after my father's death, um, what happened is they found someone to um, replace the elected president of Syria. His, uh, and uh, they did it. It was the first CIA coup ever. It was in 1949. Most people think the first CIA coup in the middle east happened when they overthrew the elected president of um i'm just suddenly blanking out on iran
0: mosadik mosadik um,
1: yes <laughs>
0: sorry that's, 55. Yeah. that's
1: okay yeah and um yeah no the first the first cia coup was in 1949 and it, it overthrew president kuatli and put in place a, a police officer who was amenable to letting that pipeline run through Syria, which it did. And guess what part of Syria it also went through? Golan Heights, which is to this day um, a very contested part of uh, that part of the Middle East because the uh, Israelis have occupied it. The Syrians believe it belongs to them. And by the way, the, the, the war in Iraq, a good part of that was to reopen a pipeline that was built in the 30s connecting the oil of Iraq to Haifa, Palestine. It was closed during the uh, 1948 um, establishment of the State of Israel, and it was um, became an issue right before the invasion of Iraq because... Um, uh, Netanyahu, the, the, he was then finance minister of Israel, boasted that, um, that, that the oil was going to start flowing from Iraq to Palestine or Israel again. And uh, he said it wasn't a pipe dream. And the, the idea they had then was to overthrow Saddam Hussein and put in place an Iraqi exile named Ahmed Shalabi, who, guess what? favored the pipeline. And the only reason that didn't happen is because Shalabi was the creator of the weapons of mass destruction myth. And once that became discredited, he became discredited. And so that plan didn't fall into place. And up to this day, that pipeline has still not been rebuilt, but it might be. So those are two examples. Then there are examples in Syria. Um, my book shows that there were two pipeline conflicts in Syria right around the time of the civil war in Syria. And, uh, you know, uh, President Bashar al-Assad uh, was opposed to a, a pipeline that was going to carry um, natural gas from Qatar, which is on the eastern coast off the eastern coast of Saudi Arabia, and was going to travel uh, through Syria and uh, to the Mediterranean. He opposed that because he thought, well, he was beholden to his Russian backers, and he didn't want to upset them because that would have competed with Russian control of natural gas. And so he, he opposed it and instead said, look, I'm for a pipeline that runs from Iran and goes through uh, Iraq, Syria, and on to Europe. Uh, that was the so-called Islamic pipeline, and as soon as those he he resisted one pipeline and proposed the other, that's when the efforts redoubled to bring about regime change in in Syria, and so um, the civil war was really became a proxy war, and it was between guess who the United States and Russia and their proxy forces these and, and now we're seeing it take place in the ukraine with the same proxy forces being used
0: same proxy forces and same kind of characters who may have been involved in the iraq war right you yeah. mentioned can you talk about the lead-up to the iraq war has some of the same characters in ukraine right you i don't know if you're well, well, what, that, but...
1: well yeah no I, I was reading that that you know in in Oh, wait a minute. You said the Iraq war, not the ceiling. Well,
0: because uh, the person is Robert Kagan. I don't know if you know this, but Robert Kagan was one of the neocons who advocated for the overthrow of Iraq, but his wife is Victoria Newland. Oh, you so, got it.
1: No, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've actually uh, written about that. Yes. That, that's another link. Um, yes. Uh, but, Robert Kagan, the neoconservative, was part of the drafting of a project for a new American century. And the new American century was a plan to make uh, the United States the major uh, power in the world, which would mean replacing any competitors, of course, including the Soviet Union. And so um, they, they had it all worked out that through the Bush administration, um, they were going to achieve all these different regime changes in different countries in the Middle East. And then one of the people that was Dick Cheney was very central to this. And as as your listeners know, he was the CEO of Halliburton, which supplies uh, all of the equipment that's needed in the oil industry. So he's a major player. And um, yeah, so one of the people that worked for Dick Cheney um, during that war in Iraq was Victoria Newland who today and she's the wife of Robert Kagan. Oh my goodness. And uh that you just mentioned the project for the New American Century leading leading neocon. Uh yeah, now she's there in the Biden administration. She's she's the I think the third in the highest person in the State Department. She's and she's been very much behind um, the Biden administration strategy vis a vis Ukraine. And she was responsible in 2014 in uh, bringing about the coup that overthrew a pro Russian president and ultimately uh, installed Zelensky. So, yes, same players. But it's you know, a, uh, it, but, but it was so frustrating is that the American people aren't told this. All they're told is bits and pieces. I I came across a wonderful quote, and um, this was when I was uh, writing The People Versus Bush, which we didn't discuss, but it's okay, I was writing that. And um, he was a forensic pathologist. He's often called in to testify on criminal cases. And what he said is that facts in isolation only lead to confusion, whereas facts put into context help you identify the cause of the crime. And that's so true. What's missing in the news context, in all the news reports, is the overall context, and uh, that includes historical context, immediate uh, preceding historical context, like. 2014 and what happened with that coup. And even going way back to 1992, there's a historical context in which uh, the dissolution of the Soviet Union occurred. but on the basis, there was an agreement between the Soviets and the Americans that that if, if the Soviet Union was going to dissolve and uh, which meant a lot of these uh, Soviet republics were going to go independence, that uh, NATO and the U.S. promised that they would not advance any closer to uh, the Russian territory. They would not move east, not one inch. And that, that uh, promise was broken by the United States. And there have been people in the State Department who, who have warned that that was a serious mistake by breaking that promise and militarizing the countries uh, closer and closer to the borders of the Soviet Union. And, of course, then Ukraine becomes the, the tragic battleground for this big war between petropowers, which is how I see it.
0: Well, I agree. I mean, it's all of the, the importance of this gas and the pipelines is going to affect the economies all around the world. A lot of the price increases that are going to happen for food and things are due in part to this the lack of energy that the cheap energy that was coming from Russia, right?
1: Yeah, right. And it's still playing out. I was just reading a piece in the Times today that, you know, part of, of Biden's strategy was to encourage uh, our allies, name, namely Saudi Arabia. Uh, and, not, and even our enemies like Venezuela to pump out more oil and, so that it, it will compensate for whatever the Soviet Union, I mean the Russians do in limiting uh, gas supplies to Europe because of the war and because of sanctions. And um, boy, they've been hesitant actually. And yeah. even in, even in the United States, <laughs> American oil companies are hesitant to pump out more. More oil because they're still very cagey about the price of oil. Given what happened in COVID, uh, during COVID the price of oil plummeted. It, I mean, it, they lost so money, so much money. It was some seem to be t- teetering on bankruptcy. These would be mostly independents, not the majors. But it, they're worried. They're worried about pumping out. They, Uh, more oil i mean they're making great profits as it is right now and uh they don't know what the picture is going to be two years from now so the whole thing is very volatile right now both in terms of energy security i mean all these different countries are scrambling around for for to figure out what they're going to do and we really don't know how it's going to come out
0: right and i don't think that i don't think that the uh the administration, the Biden administration, didn't really know what the consequences of what happened in Ukraine were going to be either, because they asked Soviet I and mean, they asked Saudi Arabia and Venezuela after the event instead of before, like they should have anticipated yeah. some of these things, uh, but they didn't. Well, um, can you, you take? Would a, think so. yeah, yeah, you would think so. Oh, I just can saw I you,
1: a, 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 Yeah,
0: go ahead. No, pl- I was just going to say, GP asked, does this connect to the Tri Continental Pipeline, which is in part owned by Louis Bloomfield and funded through Centro? Al Commercial. Do you know about that pipeline?
1: I do not know about that pipeline. I, and I would be most interested to find out more. Um, so, you know, I I give out my email address. I, I like to connect with people. So at the end of the show, if he wants to connect with me, I have a, a website called Follow the Pipelines. And the purpose of it is to really examine pipelines all over the world. And maybe he can contribute mm-hmm. to that. It was the previous person, Mr. Rebozo, who had a comment that struck me, um, but I don't remember. Oh yeah, the new Belt and Road. Yeah, well, um, there's another example. the The Belt and Road initiative is by the Chinese, and they are just making huge advances into Europe, into the Middle East into Africa, and part of it is building pipelines, part of it is building railroads and infrastructure. So, um, and I think that has the United States even more worried, the, uh, the Chinese Belt and Road, uh, than the Russians. Uh, so that was a good question. And um, I welcome more uh, cooperation and communication with other people who know about these issues.
0: And you did a lot of research to look into this. You're always in the archives with your husband or finding old documents in, in your family's attic or things like that. Can you talk about how you compiled all the information to put this book together?
1: Well, first of all, it, it, it's been done over years. And um, so the, in different book projects that 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 ended up not materializing, and so what eventually happened is that um, we decided it was going to be a major book called the kingdom and the power. Uh, but what happened is we lost our, uh, our contract with HarperCollins, uh, ostensibly because we were late, but I can tell you that, um, we are no strangers to having our books suppressed. And so that did, if, if, if a publisher really backs a book, they don't care if you're late, you know, they, they make adjustments all the time, but they use it and as a reason for why they're, they were gonna cancel that contract. So then what were we gonna do? Well, we decided to do two different projects. I was gonna focus on my father. Jerry was gonna focus on the subject, a very interesting subject, which I will call Oil and the Holocaust. Uh, if you want to pursue that one a little bit later in the show. But at any rate, um, and that's still going. Meanwhile, I I really wanted to know more about my father. That really interested me. And so when I'll tell you, when all these endless wars were happening, uh, I, and I kept seeing these pictures of bombed-out cities. I mean, you, you see it in the Ukraine. You you never saw it as much as what happened in the Middle East, in Iraq or Afghanistan. You never saw the the civilian casualties uh, like you're seeing now in Ukraine. Uh, but I saw them, and I was appalled uh, at the the devastation and the loss of life. And, and that just tipped me over the balance. So. I just decided I would connect my investigation into my father's death with pipeline politics and and how destructive they can be uh, in in their role in the endless wars in the Middle East. And that's sort of how it happened, requiring, again, uh, drawing on research that we had done over the years in the National Archives, and then I sued the CIA. So that helped.
0: Right. So you were in court in Manhattan, right, suing the CIA?
1: Yeah, yeah. Can you talk? Yeah, I did a FOIA. Um, right. I um, they reject uh, the the I I filed it in in a federal court in uh, Burlington Vermont where I live and the, the judge uh, rejected it and then I appealed and um, and I got into federal court in, in New York, Appeals, Second Circuit, and was there and, and made my case for for why I wanted this this case to proceed. And uh, while I was in the courtroom, there were two, two reporters. And when they heard that I was suing the CIA and that I said it was really important, I said in my testimony that the American people understand this whole dimension of these wars that are going on in the Middle East, they deserve to know the truth. So when I came out of the courtroom, I got interviewed by these, by these two reporters. And I had to make the decision, actually, whether to what interview it and whether this was New York Times and the uh, um, Village Voice. Both did articles on me. And I had to hesitate because I thought, God, how is this going to affect the judges, the appellate judges? Should I do this or should I not? I decided to do it because I'm all for, you know, sharing information. And as it turns out, they rejected my appeal. So, uh, but interestingly enough, um, later on when I found out in 2019, I got a phone call from the CIA telling me that they were planning to honor my father at their annual ceremony that they have every spring uh, for fallen uh, CIA agents, and they asked me if if I would like to come. So I said sure. I I would be very happy to do that. So I went down there with my family. They paid our way, put us up in a hotel, treated us royally, very nicely, gave us a tour of uh, Langley. I never thought that would happen, especially since. You know, previous books had been very critical of the CIA, but there they were um, taking us to their museum, uh, giving us a wonderful feast on the sixth floor, an Arabic feast, telling me that my father was going to have his name on one of the rooms up there, the Daniel Dennett room. And then the ultimate surprise was uh, we had a private audience with uh, Gina Haspel, the director of the CIA. So who would have guessed that all would have happened?
0: And how did that how did that meeting with her turn out?
1: Um, it was it, what can I tell you? It was very nice. It was nice. She was very genuine. Um, i uh happened to note in our meeting i mean she was there uh, the assistant director of the cia was there uh some of the historians who had who were working with me in telling me they were going to get me more documents were there and then my family my husband my brother his wife and my sister and at one point my brother said you know she said is there any questions and my brother said well you know This happened, my father's death happened over seven decades ago. And you would think that you could redact more of the documents, declassify more of the documents. And this was totally out of the blue. She seemed interested. And so I had in my purse, my father's analysis of work. The one I talked about earlier in the show where he says we got to protect the oil at all costs, heavily redacted. And so I pulled it out of my purse and I said, well, as a matter of fact, maybe we could start with this document. And I handed it to her and she looked at it and handed it to an assistant and told me she, she would look into that. And, um, so ultimately, uh, several months went by, but lo and behold, they declassified the entire document. And, um, also they gave me more documents so and i still haven't even had the time to probe and explore the all the documents that they sent there's still some that that have not been turned over but i think you know obviously um there was an effort to um win me over i got visited by uh, three CIA people about a month before this annual ceremony, which is uh, is called the, uh, the memorial's wall. When you walk into the CIA, you'll see stars on the wall. These are all fallen agents. And every year they honor somebody who's fallen in the line of duty. And so they said they were adding my father's name as the first fallen star who had not been previously acknowledged because he died before the CIA was created, but had, they reasoned, had had similar training and was also highly regarded because he was an Arab scholar, uh, he knew uh, Islam history and culture inside out. He was posted as cultural attache. That was his cover. And he had been recognized previously by a CIA historian who even wrote a piece on the CIA website about how Dennett should be acknowledged. So that's how they ended up honoring him. And I'm glad for it because I think um, nowadays there's not enough attention to to understanding a culture and um, instead just going in in a punitive way, that is not going to win hearts and minds. Let's face it. We're always going to need intelligence organizations and why not have ones where your, your top officers are uh, sensitive and, and knowledgeable of the peoples that they're dealing with. I mean, it's just a fact as, as far as I can see, nonetheless, um, I still, uh, I still monitor what they're doing, and I'm critical if I, if I see they're going off the track. They've actually admitted uh, to all the civilian casualties in Afghanistan. There, there was a huge report that came out in the CIA. So you would think that there would be some reforms uh, in how they do things, and I was assured that my father would be looked upon as a role model. So I can take some satisfaction on that. And I know that he was very devoted democracy. He really believed in what he was doing. I think a lot of them are that way. When I when I was walking through those halls and I met people, I, a lot of them struck me, we had conversations as quite genuine. And um, I think they would be happy if they didn't have to be defending oil companies all the time. They never told me that outright, but a lot of them came up and thanked me. I wasn't even sure what they were thanking me for. Were they thanking me because I was looking into his death? Were, were they thanking me that I discovered he was one of the first victims of the great game for oil? Well, I won't know. I guess I won't know that, but it was it was an amazing experience.
0: That's 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 great. Thanks for telling that story. Do you have anything? We're at about 48 minutes. Do you have anything you'd like to add? Anything I missed before we wrap this up.
1: Whoa. Um, yeah. We gotta redouble our efforts on the issue of climate change. Um I mean, all of Europe understands that now because of the war in Ukraine. Their their energy insecurity has become more obvious than ever to them because of the fear that the Russians are going to turn it off. And then what are they going to do? I mean, the implications are huge for industry, also for oil. Uh, And um, so in the United States, there's been a different reaction. Um, Well, the Biden administration has been going against uh, all of his promises to bring about um, alternatives, alternative energy by opening up uh, leases on public lands and doing the drill baby drill mantra um, with the oil companies. And now he's, fascinatingly, now now he's facing opposition from the oil companies. But the major thing, you've got to put the pressure on getting off fossil fuels. Once you do that, well, then we have to worry about lithium, which is the main, one of the main sources for uh, electric cars, for instance, the batteries. So they're always going to be great games. But whether they will be as deadly as this past century, I would certainly hope that it wouldn't. And with solar and wind, uh, ideally, once we ever get to that, then maybe we won't have all these destructive uh, endless wars.
0: And there's a lot more to this book. There's, they talk about Yemen, Yemen, which is happening today, pipeline politics, Palestine, and Israel. We didn't even get into that. There's an audio book for this as well, so you can listen to the audio book. And where's the best place for people to get this book? And they get a signed copy through followthepipelines.com or just through Amazon?
1: Well, a signed copy. Um that's a thought. Hadn't even gotten there. Um, they, they can get copies uh, through Chelsea Green, the publisher. They can order it through their local bookstore. And Amazon, of course, has it. Uh, if they want a signed copy, they can contact me. And, I, and that's through I have your website? Copy. And they can do it through my website. Actually, one of the other website is charlottedenet.com. I have two. charlottedenet.com. I think my email is up there. Uh, I'm also a lawyer, so it has some of my legal work on that. And then the other one is uh, follow the pipelines. And, yeah, let's talk.
0: Okay. I will put Do those have two. Time? Yeah. I have another interview in two minutes. <laughs> if you want to add something. Yeah. yeah, I've got about I 120 seconds. To...
1: If you want to understand the origin of the creation of the State of Israel, There's a pipeline connection. Read my book. I will say that because I know a lot of listeners are are very concerned. Whether they're pro-Jewish or pro-Arab or whatever, believe me, there is an oil and pipeline connection that has never been revealed, and I'm revealing it in my book.
0: Great. People can check that out. Highly recommend it. Title of the book, again, is Follow the Pipelines, Uncovering the Mystery of a Lost Spy, and the Deadly Politics of the Great Game for Oil, just published February 2022. And the author, again, is Charlotte Dennett. Thank you so much, Charlotte, for your time.
1: Thank you very much.
0: All right, take care. Take care. Stay there, stay there.